Jodcast, a llama-friendly podcast with George Bendo, John Field, Stuart Harper, Fiona Healy, Indy LeClerc, and Ian Morrison. The Jodcast, May 2014 edition. Hello and welcome to the Jodcast. I'm George Bendo and joining me today is Fiona Healy and Indy LeClerc. Hello. Hi, uh... Hi George. In the show this time, Chris talks to Dr. Chris Hales about polarized radio sources. Ian Morrison and John Field take a look at what's happening in the May night sky, and we bring you some astronomical odds and ends. But first, before all of that, here's Stuart with this month's news. In this month's news, is there no place like home? NASA's Kepler satellite is undeniably an impressive mission. Having been running now continuously since 2009, it has analysed over 150,000 stars in a 100 square degree patch of sky, and has identified more than 3,800 planetary candidates. However, if you are only interested in the news of Earth-like habitable planets, then the discoveries of Kepler may appear to be infuriatingly sparse. During Kepler's five years of operation, there have been no planets which precisely fit the narrow criteria needed to be an Earth-like planet. This is because an Earth-like planet must orbit a Sun-like star within the habitable zone, and be of a similar radius to the Earth. There have been several planets that have come close to being Earth-like, such as Kepler-20e, which orbits a Sun-like star, has a radius which is about 80% of the Earth, but its small orbit means its surface temperature is of the order of several hundred degrees Celsius. There has also been Kepler-22b, which orbits another Sun-like star, and is within the habitable zone, but has almost twice the radius of the Earth, making it unlikely to have a rocky surface. Perhaps, though, the search for new Earths around sun-like stars is too restricting. After all, every star will have a habitable zone around it, and it is known that stars smaller than the sun evolve slower, which is perhaps more conducive to the long timescales required for life to develop. Smaller stars than the sun have other advantages over sun-like stars when it comes to finding new Earths. For one, smaller stars are more abundant, for example, within 30 light-years of the Earth, there are only five sun-like stars, but there are hundreds of small Class M red dwarf stars. This provides a large sample of potential planetary systems to study. Also, smaller stars have habitable zone orbits that are much smaller than those of the sun-like stars, meaning that the habitable planets will require less time to orbit the host star which means Kepler can build up the picture of the orbiting planets over a much shorter span of time. However, most of the planets discovered around red dwarf type stars seem to have very tiny orbits, and because the stars are so dim, follow-up observations from Earth-based telescopes, which are required to determine properties of exoplanets, are far more difficult, if not impossible, at the present time. With all that said, though, the announcement last month by the Kepler team of the newly discovered planet Kepler-186f is enormously exciting. It is the first planet to be discovered that has an estimated radius that is almost exactly the same as the Earth's, and is nestled snugly within the important habitable zone, therefore meaning liquid water on its surface is possible. Of course, at the present time, Kepler-186f is the only planet of its kind that has been found around a red dwarf star. But due to the way Kepler detects planets by measuring the slight dimming of the star when the planet passes directly in front of it, even one detection wildly increases the probability that there are similar planets around other red dwarf stars. Unfortunately, detections of such planets for the time being with Kepler will not tell us anything about the likelihood of life on these planets. However, discovering them will provide a catalogue for which future, more sophisticated space telescopes such as the James Webb Telescope can study and reveal the properties of their atmospheres, which may tell us whether or not life on these distant worlds exists. Thanks for that, Stuart. Now Chris interviews Dr. Chris Hales about faint polarized radio sources. 
Today on the Jogcast, we have Dr. Chris Hales from the National Radio Astronomy Observatory in the US. Hi, Chris. Hi. So, you were talking today about some anomaly in radio sources. Could you try and like describe originally what that anomaly was? So, if you look out at distant uh, radio galaxies, you can see them in both their total intensity light and also if you put on your polarized radio sunglasses, you can see them in polarized light. So, if you uh, look out uh, in the total intensity light, then you can count up how many galaxies that you see, uh, depending on how bright they are. And with that, you can try and predict what you would see if you put on your polarized sunglasses. And so what people previously did was they made this prediction of what you would see with your polarized sunglasses on, and then they went out and tried to uh, measure how many sources they actually saw, and they found a discrepancy. And this discrepancy hinted that maybe something very interesting was happening with very faint polarized radio galaxies. Uh, they might have very, very strong magnetic fields in them, or they might, uh, there might be some unexpected population of faint sources uh, uh, coming into, into view. Okay. So what, I mean, what are these sources? What kind of causes the, the radio emission that you're looking at? So the radio emission uh, in these distant galaxies comes from very high-energy electrons, um, and they produce a type of radiation called synchrotron radiation. And this radiation is linearly polarized, uh, so you can observe it with your polarized sunglasses on. <laughs> okay, so then, so what, what was your aim then? So this kind of was the background, so what, what were you trying to do at that point then? So the, the preliminary studies uh, had been uh, performed, and so what we wanted to do was to uh, try and look with some uh, more sensitive data uh, and with some more careful uh, new techniques uh, for analysis in order to, to really understand uh, this unusual behavior. Uh, really, were there more of these faint sources, uh, uh, or, or perhaps was it something that might have been an artifact of... Uh, the original observations. And so we went back and we performed a different survey uh, going, uh, we kept our radio camera uh, open for much longer so we took a much more sensitive uh, snapshot of the sky uh, and using that we were able to, and we very carefully analysed that data uh, and unfortunately we didn't find this uh, this unexpected population. We found what would uh, you would normally have expected from beforehand. Okay, so what? So, firstly, how do you do this prediction? I mean, what, what, how do you have any idea what, how many polarized sources you'd have in the first place? So the idea is that we we have a good handle from many decades of studies on what the the total intensity light, uh, the the regular light is. Uh, we we have a good handle on how many galaxies you would see uh, at various brightnesses as you look out into the universe. Uh, and uh, we can estimate uh, a distribution of, of uh, polarization that you would see for different brightnesses of different sources. And so if you combine these two, you know uh, roughly how many total intensity sources there are, and you know roughly what kind of polarization or what kind of fractional polarization uh, a typical total intensity source should have, you can then predict uh, what, how many polarized sources you should see. Okay. So the, so this prediction worked for kind of the bright sources you could see. You saw the amount of bright sources that you'd expect to see. But then exactly, there were, yes. There were too many faint sources. Were there, like, what were the kind of theoretical explanations other than just a data artifact? Well, the, the original uh, observations didn't go too far to try and explain uh, what was found because it was, it was a discovery paper. And people then started investigating uh, the uh, other properties of these of these galaxies, trying to target these these galaxies and see, for example, were their infrared properties different from uh, from the typical sources that we see. Uh, Did they find anything? Did they see any differences between the, these extra sources? Is it high? well? I assume they were kind of there were a number of sources which were brighter than you expect them to be, and we were. Did they see anything different? So their, their other multi-wavelength properties didn't come across as uh, particularly different to the, the typical sources that we, we already knew about. Okay, so basically this one paper found some extra bright sources and there didn't seem to be any reason why they would be 
brighter it, than you'd expect. Is that? Yeah, except it was a few a few papers actually. It was a, a series of of uh, different studies had had looked into this and had made this this essentially preliminary finding of, of more of these types of galaxies than you'd normally expect. Uh, and so, uh, more recently, people were trying to understand this, and so we went back and. Uh, and did uh, a, a very careful analysis using uh, new techniques for analysing the polarised light from these galaxies in order to really understand whether what we were seeing was um, a true astrophysical uh, cause or whether it was something that could have been caused by just the way that you analyse your data. Okay, so if I'm, if I've got this right, how did the, this, you said this was your PhD, right? Was this, this was uh, what I did for my PhD. Okay, yeah. so, so I'm assuming at the beginning of your PhD, like your supervisor had, saw that there would seem to be no real reason for these extra sources to be brighter, and they're like, okay, well, we need someone to try and work out, do the data analysis in a better way. Is that kind of sort of? Um, actually, as it as it happened at the very beginning, we were more interested in really understanding this new population because if if someone finds that there's there's a new type of source or there's something unusual going on, uh, the idea would be to try and investigate that more deeply and and. For example, look more closely at these galaxies and see, do they have, for example, much stronger magnetic fields? Because stronger magnetic fields could lead to uh, higher levels of this polarised emission from these fainter galaxies. And if so, that would tell you something about uh, the, the magnetic histories of galaxies. Uh, because as we know, looking out in, in redshift, you're looking back in time. And so uh, finding galaxies with much stronger magnetic fields at higher redshift would say would tell you something about how galaxies have evolved, and that would be um, of great interest. And so we were really trying to to follow that up. Uh, and as it turned out, the more we got into the data analysis, the more we became sus suspect that something else might be at play. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so it was it was you you started your work hoping, fair enough, hoping for an interesting find, and in the end, finding that. Maybe the more interesting thing was the data analysis, which to, to most people is more of a boring, bland topic, but it's something that uh, is is extremely important because it's what links, uh, you know, the observation to some kind of scientific conclusion. That that method of how you actually analyze your data is critical. No, I I, I agree completely. That's basically what my my PhD is as well as <laughs> doing data analysis that isn't biased. It's... Okay, so so people have found these. Faint sources that would appear to be brighter than you expect. Okay. In polarization. In polarization, not not in the intensity, but in polarization. So, what was causing them to find that? I mean, what what about the data analysis they were doing actually caused them to find a higher intensity than they would expect? Uh, it's probably a combination of a few things, uh, but one of the things we found was that the standard tools that people use for just measuring how bright a source is from total intensity doesn't transfer well when you're measuring how bright a polarised source is. And that's just to do with uh, the, the, the noise environment in which you're making these measurements. You know, if you take a, a, a photograph at night time, you see that the photograph is, is fuzzy. It's got this, uh, you'll have some noise uh, in it. Uh, and if uh, the techniques developed to, to operate within this noise environment uh, in the radio and total intensity didn't transfer well into polarization and so we had to develop a new tool to analyze how bright polarized sources are which we called blobcat and which is going through and it's cataloging blobs in in an image and it turns out that this tool was actually quite good in total intensity as well uh, but we found that this was probably one of the main reasons why uh, some of the previous studies were finding um, uh, the different results um, okay so they so the impression I got from the talk was that you were kind of fitting for a smooth kind of normal distribution on on the intensity maps. Like you've got because you've got when you when usually when you have a map, so I I find you kind of you see you have a blob and that blob underlying should be a kind of smooth normal distribution around the center. But obviously you've got noise on top of that. Yes. So then so for the intensity that's what they were fitting for. I assume they yes. were fitting for this. But you're saying that didn't work. On the polarize on the polarization. Yeah, so the the typical profile that people use is a a Gaussian, a normal distribution, uh, so that your source looks a little bit like a two dimensional Gaussian. It's a two dimensional little um, normal distribution. Uh, that's what your sources look like in total intensity, but in polarization, just 
due to some, some subtle statistics that come into how you produce your polarization images, you can no longer assume that that uh, two-dimensional Gaussian shape uh, looks uh, is, is an appropriate way to fit your sources at uh, very low signal-to-noise ratio, so these faint sources that, that you're interested in pushing at the detection limit of your, your survey. So uh, a new approach is needed to be found, and so that's what we tried to do. Okay, so you literally just was a were able to relax that assumption, and then that came, gave you a better... Yeah, yeah. yeah the, 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 one of the main things that, uh, that helps is yeah, relaxing that assumption that uh, these things have to follow this 2D elliptical Gaussian uh, shape, which again, in total intensity, is, it makes a lot of sense, because uh, that's, that's the natural uh, type of shape you'd expect to observe in, in a radio image. Um, okay, brilliant. So you said that this was your PhD and I assume you've kind of finished your PhD and now a postdoc. Yes. So what what are you doing now? What are you working on now? So now I'm over in the desert, in the, the desert of New Mexico in the US. Uh, and again, I'm working on deep polarization surveys, but this time I'm using them to try and... Uh, I'm, I'm performing an extremely deep survey with a telescope called the Very Large Array, and we have a thousand hours of time to stare at one point in the sky... Uh, just keep your, your radio shutter, your radio eye open for a thousand hours to make one of the deepest images of the radio sky ever. And by making a very, very deep image, uh, you can see more and more sources, and so you have a much denser grid of, of sources across your field of view. Uh, and this is really good if you want to detect lots of polarized sources. And the reason we want to detect lots of polarized sources is we want to look at uh, how the polarized light from these sources is subtly affected by magnetic fields as this light traverses uh, large-scale structure, the cosmic web throughout our universe. Uh, and using this, we want to try and measure magnetic fields out in the filaments, in the cosmic web of, of intergalactic space. And this will try and uh, help uh, to better understand the magnetic history of our universe and answer questions such as, were there magnetic fields generated uh, soon after the Big Bang, or were most uh, magnetic fields that we find in galaxies today, were they, were they, uh, do they derive from, for example, the process of, of galaxies very first forming? Uh, or, for example, could, could magnetic fields in, in the galaxies we observe today be largely seeded by outflows from the very first um, supermassive black holes or from, uh, from early stars exploding, for example? And so uh, understanding where magnetic fields come from in the 13.7 the billion year cosmic history of the universe is, is really a fundamental unsolved problem in astrophysics. And so we're trying to make headway um, by making uh, one of the first measurements of magnetic fields in intergalactic space. So you're trying to map the magnetic fields with, with, with cosmic time and, and space, or is it just, like, just cosmic time? So our study is a very, very narrow pencil beam uh, line of sight uh, through the galaxy. So we're typically looking just with the cosmic time aspect. Uh, but uh, you can statistically convert that into what's going on as a, as a function of, of three-dimensional space. Okay, so you're trying to map the magnetic field through, as it grows or shrinks, whatever happened to it yes. through cosmic time. So how, how do you know what the magnetic field is by looking at these polarized sources. The linearly polarized light from these, uh, these background sources uh, exhibits Faraday rotation. So this is, this is just birefringence uh, in the intergalactic medium. So what that means is that you, it's much like a calcite crystal when you, um, when you place it over some text that you might have done in school. Uh, you can see that the light is split into two different uh, rays, and that's you're actually splitting into two different polarization modes there. Uh, you can utilize this effect uh, uh, in radio astronomy because the amount, what happens in the intergalactic medium uh, due to this Faraday rotation effect is that this position angle of linear polarization will be rotated by some degree as it comes towards you, but that rotation depends on the wavelength that you're observing at. So if you look at lots of different uh, wavelengths of light, of radio light, and you look at how much the position angle has been rotated, you can uh, 
measure something called the rotation measure, and that rotation measure contains within it information about the electron density and the magnetic fields between you and the background source. So if you pick a background source that's halfway across the other side of the universe, then it encapsulates all of the, the path length along that distance. And so you can look at sources at different redshifts, for example, uh, to try and build up a picture of how magnetic fields have evolved, or you can look uh, at correlations between nearby sources, so sources that are nearby uh, traverse similar lines of sight throughout the cosmic web, and so they'll have uh, presumably similar, uh, they'll traverse similar magnetic field structures, and so they'll have similar rotation measures, and those that are uh, a bit further apart in terms of angular separation on the sky uh, will be less correlated because they'll traverse uh, rather different structures. And so you can combine all of this information in order to better understand magnetic fields in, in large-scale structure. Sounds, sounds very interesting. Thank you for coming today. Thank you. Thanks for that, Chris. Now we come to the part of the show where we fit in all those other things that we can't fit in anywhere else, the odds and ends. And I want to lead off today with some discussion about llamas, which has been a uh, popular topic in the past on the Jodcast. There are some a uh, couple of uh, news items which have uh, come up on the European Southern Observatory website. They have a lot of telescopes based in Chile, and so uh, at the uh, high-altitude sites, they also have a lot of interaction with llamas at, that si at those sites. The first thing isn't really a news item so much as just a uh, photo of the week uh, featured on the ESO website, which was taken by Hakandali at La Silla Observatory, and it shows a picture of a rock with petroglyphs of llamas on it, just to remind us that the astronomers aren't the first people who have been up to these sites, that uh, these sites were previously uh, visited by the uh, Indians beforehand. And by llamas. And by llamas. It may have been that the llamas drew the uh, people up there. The picture release also uh, discusses some of the tie-ins between uh, llamas and astronomy in South America, first pointing out that the constellation that Europeans refer to as Lyra, which is the lyre, which was an ancient Greek harp-like instrument, it was uh, referred to as Urkuchie, or the llama, by the Incas. And there was also another constellation which was, or sort of a constellation, not in the same sense that we think of constellations, which are individual bright stars, but uh, dark patches against the plane of the Milky Way, which was referred to as Yakana. And the head of Yakana was at the star Alpha Centauri. Nice. Yeah, it just makes you wonder, because, I mean, all, all, all different cultures have different names and different things that the constellations kind of refer to. So we're all really familiar with the sort of Greco-Roman uh, pantheon of, of gods and things that they, they refer to. But the Chinese have a totally different system of constellations that um, that they use, and obviously the Incas do. So it's I think I think we should probably learn more about different kinds of constellations, because you can pretty much interpret the sky whichever way you want to, I guess. Yeah, I think it's really cool. Just, just to uh, kind of clarify on that point, it's not just the Europeans who uh, uh, use the Greco-Roman system. It was actually um, foundations for that were developed in Babylon first. And then the Greeks and the Romans fleshed out the constellation system. And then the Arabs got hold of all of the stuff that was left behind by the Roman Empire and uh, went to work doing much more detailed work on the constellations and giving a lot of the stars names which we know them by today, which is why a lot of stars like, uh, for example, Altair or Aldebaran uh, begin with the syllable Al. I think that we should um, start campaigning to have magazines move to llama-based horoscopes. That would Ooh. actually be amazing. I think that would be an interesting change. <laughs> <laughs> we could all find out what our llama signs are. <laughs> wow. So another llama-related astronomy news. There was a press release uh, back in March from the Alma Observatory, which mentioned that earlier in the year, they had rescued a fawn, 
of Vicuña, which was only a few weeks old, which had been separated from the rest of its herd by a uh, bunch of colpeos. And uh, instead of watching the colpeos eat the poor fawn, the uh, observatory staff rescued the Vicuña, took care of it for a while, eventually got it to a rehabilitation center where they're going to raise the Vicuña and eventually introduce it back into the wild. Just to let people know, Vicuña is wild version of the alpaca, which is a uh, species related to llama. Looks a lot like a llama, but has a much more shaggy coat. Well, uh, George, you know an awful lot about llamas, and uh, this reminds me that I actually also have a piece of llama-related information to share. Um, my boyfriend back in Ireland comes from a very, very small town in the country, and uh, every year they used to have this kind of village fair, which took place in the biggest field in the town, and, you know, there'd be some kind of people selling jam and uh, various entertainments. But one of one of the people who used to come there was this man who used to sell llamas. He used to, he used to sell the llamas to the local sheep farmers, and he'd say, buy these llamas off me, uh, and your sheep will be completely safe. The llamas will protect your sheep. Uh, and, you know, pe- I think people used to actually buy the llamas. Uh, and it turns out, actually, that, that llamas, I think... Uh, repel foxes, or that fo- foxes don't like to be around llamas. Ah. Um, uh, something about the smell of them, or something, I don't know. Well, keeps, llamas... keeps foxes away, and so so you put a llama inside in your sheep field, and your sheep will be safe from the foxes. <laughs> llamas, fully grown llamas, are relatively fierce creatures. Yeah. Mm. You apparently don't want them to spit you. Mm. And what you describe it, I, what you describe happening in Ireland is also something which I've seen in the United States. So I've, mm-hmm. like, for example, driven around Montana and seen pastures where there would be a small herd of sheep and their guardian llama there. Ah, and, right, okay. Uh, yeah, that's interesting. And, yeah, because this guy was kind of like a local oddity. You know, he'd just show up every year and he was like the man with the llamas. And no, he, <laughs> no one really knew what it was about. <laughs> he, he knows what he's doing, too. And, uh, you know, places like Montana, the sheep have to watch out for coyotes, which yeah. are a bit larger and a bit more fierce. Hmm. Um, having a llama nearby is uh, very beneficial for the herd. Yeah. Nice. Moving back to science, Fiona, what have you got for uh, us this week? <laughs> okay, my odd and end today uh, kind of continues my current obsession with exoplanets. Um, and today, actually, I'm not going to be talking about planets as such. I'm going to be talking about exomoons. So, as we most of us know by now, um, exoplanets, the way we determine whether or not they might be habitable, we first look at whether or not they're in what's called the Goldilocks Zone. So in other words, we don't want them to be too close to their host star, but nor do we want them to be too far away because we don't want them to be too hot or too cold. If they're not inside that zone, then they won't be able to harbour life. But it turns out that a lot of the exoplanets that we detect are actually these big, huge gas giants. So even if they are inside the Goldilocks zone, they wouldn't be able to harbour life anyway because um, they're just not very hospitable. But they might have moons which could harbour life. Um, and there's there's a group in the University of Edinburgh uh, led by Duncan Forgan and Virgil Yotov uh, who are investigating whether or not exomoons could be habitable and if so, what, what are the criteria that make them habitable? So it's, it's as you can imagine, a much more complicated study than, than it would be with exoplanets because with exomoons, you just have a lot more going on. So for example, they have to take into account tidal forces on the moons which cause internal heating due to the forces of gravity um, of the the host planet kind of pulling them and reshaping them slightly, which which causes them to sort of heat up from the inside. So what you get is um, actually exoplanets which are slightly outside of the habitable zone um, on the cold side might host exomoons which are just about warm enough to harbour life. Uh, And they also have to look at whether or not the moons experience eclipses um, because obviously if the host planet is blocking out the light from the host star a lot of the time, then that's going to be awkward for, for life to exist on the planet. But the other side of that coin is that sometimes light from the host star can be reflected off the surface of the host planet and onto the exomoon, uh, which can make it warmer. So eclipsing exomoons tend to not not be as, as habitable, but um, on the other hand, then you have exomoons which are, which are warmed both by their host star and by their host planet. Um, so that's very interesting. So yeah, they've um, not actually discovered any exomoons yet, 
but there's ways um, in theory that we could detect them uh, because obviously an exomoon will have a gravitational effect on its its host planet so by studying the light curves a light curve is when the host planet passes in front of of the, st the star that it's orbiting you look at the star and you see a small dip in the light coming from the star and that's how you know there's a planet there and if you look at those light curves over time and if you see slight irregularities in the little dips in the light curves that could mean that there's a moon orbiting the planet so that's how they could detect exomoons but they haven't actually found any yet but if they do find them they will be very interested to see uh, whether or not any of them could be habitable and Forgan and Yotov have a paper on archive which you can read and we will put the link to that on the on the website just one thing to uh, point out so you described the uh, tidal forces of like uh, large gas giants acting on the uh, uh, moons heating up the um, centers of the moons this is something that we actually see in our uh, own solar system with um, Io uh, in orbit around Jupiter right, being the yeah. most prominent example, mm -hmm. but I also believe uh, Europa is also right. to some degree affected as well. Yeah. And there's been a lot of postulating that Europa uh, may have liquid water underneath its solid surface. Right. And so if we expect Earth-like life uh, with the same type of chemistry, we may expect to find it in the center of Europa, perhaps. Um, so this is, and Jupiter is clearly outside the Goldilocks zone. Yes. So yeah. it's um, yeah. uh, it's it's very clear what these people up in Edinburgh are uh, attempting to do uh, yeah, in terms of finding life. It makes a lot of sense because um, you're right; we do see it here in our own solar system. My other end is uh, also in the solar system, and and it's going back to the red planet that we all know and love. Uh, because a group of students wants to send a time capsule filled with images and sounds from life on Earth to Mars. So the project is called Imaginatively Time Capsule to Mars, and it's been started up by uh, university students in the States, mainly from Duke, MIT, and the University of Connecticut. And what they want to do is develop three small spacecraft, uh, three identical spacecraft, and load them up with pictures, messages, possibly audio and even video provided by people all over the world and then launch these into first into space and, and they want to get them all the way to Mars. The goal of the thing is, is well, first of all, to prove that a small privately funded uh, student project could actually get something on Mars. And the second goal is to leave a time capsule of sorts for any future humans that might one day set foot on Mars. The founder of this, one of the founders called Emily Briere, who's an undergrad at Duke University, says uh, Mars is a good destination because for for their generation it's bold, but it's still achievable. It, they, they see it as being just within their grasp as students and something that would extend and, and help with the research towards actually trying to put humans on Mars. So the project is going to mainly be crowdfunded. The, the organizers expect that they'll need something around the region of $25 million dollars which, as far as space travel goes and as far as space projects go, isn't actually that much. And they want it to be one of the largest crowdfunded science projects ever. So the, the concept is that if you want to participate, if you want to get a message, um, some audio, a picture or possibly even video, you would pay for, for that privilege. And so that would contribute to the, to the funding of the project. The, the actual payload uh, of the, the spacecraft would, would actually be, so the pictures, the, the messages would all be encoded and engraved onto tungsten plates. Tungsten is an extremely resistant uh, metal and so presumably it would survive the trip all the way to Mars. They want to load these plates onto a small, very small space, well, spacecraft is a bit big of a word, but little CubeSats, which is actually a sort of a widespread format for, for small uh, experimental satellites. So it's essentially just a a, a cuboid, um, more of a more of a rectangle type thing, which would measure thirty by forty by ten centimeters. So we're talking really small here. And once it would once it would be in space, it would be propelled by a, a um, an iron electrospray propulsion uh, system, which is currently being researched uh, at, at MIT. But would so it would expel ions to, to to create thrust, and it would get those by essentially yanking the ions out of um, a propellant, uh, an ionic liquid, using a strong electric field. I thought they had already developed propulsion systems like that for uh, some of the solar system missions that have been launched previously. Yeah, but they have, but the, the goal, the, the difficult part is actually trying to 
fit it onto a, a small, a tiny cube and, and make sure that the propulsion kind of works properly. So ah, the so, specific... Um, so the trick is making it small. Yes. Right. I believe that's, uh, that's one of the obstacles. They, they don't mention much uh, about how they'd actually stick these things into space in the first place, but I'm assuming that it wouldn't be too much to, to put... It wouldn't be too difficult to just pop them on a rocket that's that's already going to be going up because these are these are really small cubes. So they want to make three of these CubeSats, so with these engraved tungsten plates which have all these messages. And the goal would just be to stick them on a trajectory that would essentially slam them into Mars and make the little cube sturdy enough that they would survive the impact. And then in 50, 100, 150 years' time, future astronauts could uh, could go back and see all the people who paid for the privilege of getting their messages onto that cube in the first place. That that's really nice that they're sending pictures and messages and things up to Mars. But I wonder, um, I, I mean, it's a really good idea. I wonder, is there anything useful we could send to Mars? Um, you know that that well, people you... who land on Mars in the future might might actually benefit from in in more than a kind of nostalgic sense. I mean, because that's lovely that project. Um, it's a really good idea. But it, what it makes me think of is, you know, it opens the pathway for kind of some sort of Noah's Ark type scenario. You know, where we could maybe send like i don't know i'm actually more cynical than that about this entire thing um my first thought is couldn't we spend the 25 million dollars on like an actual research project like couldn't we stick some sort of either place a small telescope in orbit which may not be as large or as uh good as the hubble space telescope but may still be able to do some interesting science, particularly in wave bands, which we can't see from the Earth very well, like ultraviolet light or mid-infrared light. The other possibility with $25 million would be like, you know, you could actually build uh, a halfway decent observatory with a primary mirror of about a couple of meters, I think. Um, yeah, but as observatory well, got gone, indeed. Uh, I, I was going to say, I think I think the point of this is more. So, I mean, obviously they haven't got the twenty five million dollars yeah. yet. They're trying to raise them, and it, it's 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 a little bit of a media, uh, not stunt, but it, it, it's it's something that that aims to attract this kind of funding. I mean, their goal is the twenty five million, and to be honest, if it wasn't something that was so friendly to the media and to the general public and it generated this much interest it probably wouldn't it won't get to that total and and admittedly 25 million dollars could could help a great deal in in terms of building uh, maybe a, a small orbital telescope or, or an observatory but i think the aim here is more to to really generate interest from the general public and and uh, in, in doing so helping to make the technology to exactly to a little bit I think the focus of this isn't so much to observe things in space, but just for the human race to sort of expand itself and, and um, make our mark on the solar system a bit more. I think that's really nice. And I really love the thought of, you know, future astronomers landing on Mars, and <laughs> well, finding cute pictures of, of a grumpy cat. And <laughs> yeah. Like I said, my, my first thought was uh, that they could spend the money on something else. But my second thought is that maybe this is really a good way to get a lot of money to work on a new ion propulsion system, which actually sounds very novel. Exactly. Yeah, it would be useful to, to develop that. So. And so if you just had a guy apply to the National Science Foundation or NASA, both of which are probably cash-strapped these days, and say, I'm going to develop this new propulsion system, it's like, it'd be really competitive to get money. But then if you say uh, to the general public, uh, I want to launch time capsules at Mars, Using... And you can put your selfies on it. Oh, yes. <laughs> you can put your selfies on it, put photos of last night's dinner on it, um, selfies with last night's dinner, and send it to Mars. Oh, and by the way, uh, we need to develop the propulsion system to make this thing work. You know, that may be a much better way to get funding for a research project these days than actually going the straight-laced way of applying to NASA. Yeah, no, definitely. Yeah. I think it's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Do you think if we offered to use, um, you know, E. Merlin to beam selfies and <laughs> pictures of cats into space, that we get loads of funding from the public? <laughs> that might work. In, in, in the me in the meantime, we should probably try and get an episode of the Jodcast onto that onto one of those Mars satellites. Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> and now, after all of that discussion about Mars and putting your selfies on Mars. 
Here's Ian Morrison to tell us more about Mars, as well as the other planets in the night sky in the month of May. The night sky for May 2014. As twilight ends, the constellation of the heavenly twins Gemini is setting over in the west. And fairly close to the horizon, down to its lower left, is the star Procyon in Canis Minor. Moving towards the south, we pass through the constellation of Cancer, with the rather nice beehive cluster M44 as its heart. Very good with binoculars. And then, in fact, we come to Leo the Lion, fairly high, somewhat west of south. Its brightest star is Regulus, the king star. There's some very nice galaxies that lie low, over to the left of Regulus, can be picked out with a small telescope or even binoculars from a very dark site when there's no moon. Further over still, a bright star Arcturus, yellowish star, which is in the constellation of Bootes. And up to its left, a little circlet of stars, Corona Borealis. And then we come to Hercules, four stars making up what is called the Keystone. Two-thirds of the way up the right-hand side of the Keystone, with binoculars or a telescope, you'll see a little fuzzy blob. That's the globular cluster M13. Then rising over in the east is the bright star Vega in the constellation of Lyra. Down in the northeast, you may spot Deneb in Cygnus. These are the stars that make up the summer stars that will be more visible later during the year. Down below, Bootes and Arcturus, we have some fairly faint constellations. We have obviously Virgo with its bright star Spica. To its lower left, Libra, the scales, the Serpens Caput, and even a quite a large constellation below Hercules called Ophiuchus. Not many people know about that constellation. In fact, the Sun spends more time in Ophiuchus than some of the other constellations. But would you like to be an Ophiuchan? rather than a Sagittarian or Scorpio. What about the planets? Well, in fact, we can see all of them, all of the unaided eye planets this month. Jupiter has had a lovely run, very high in the sky in Gemini. As May begins, it's still at an elevation of 45 degrees in the western sky an hour after sunset, and it sets about 1 a.m. British summertime. It's obviously now past its best, and fading from magnitude minus 2 to minus 1.9 during the month, whilst its angular diameter shrinks a little from 35 to 33 arc seconds. And by the end of May, it'll only be 20 degrees above the horizon after sunset and sets around 11pm. So best to look at it as early as you can in the month. It lies in the constellation Gemini, starting the month 2 degrees north of the 4th magnitude star Macbuta, which is Zeta Geminorum. Now moving eastwards across the sky towards Castor and Pollux, passing within half a degree north of the star Wazat, Delta Geminorum, on May the 22nd. And obviously with a small telescope, you can observe the four Galilean moons as they weave their way around it. And at times, you might be able to pick up the great red spot, visible as an indentation of the south equatorial belt. Saturn. Well, Saturn comes to opposition when it's roughly due south around midnight, UT, on May the 10th. So this is the best month to observe it. It rises just after sunset and sets basically just before sunrise. Lying in Libra, which is fairly low, sadly, in the sky, it's shining with a magnitude of plus 0.1. The disk has a diameter of 18.6 arc seconds and the rings about 40 or so arc seconds across. It began its retrograde motion across the sky on March and is now moving slowly westwards in Libra towards the star Alpha Libri. The rings are now opened out to about 22 degrees, so they make a magnificent sight. And if the seeing is good with a small telescope, you should be able to spot Cassini's division that lies between the A and the B rings. And sadly, over the next few years, Saturn gets lower and lower in the ecliptic, and hence lower and lower above the horizon in our sky. Mars, following its opposition last month, Mars is now receding rapidly. 
So we'll dim from magnitude minus 1.2, fairly bright in fact, to minus 0.5 during the month. I spotted it just above the full moon last night, in fact, before I recorded these notes. It was really very obvious. As it does so, its angular size will shrink from 14.5 down to 11.8 arc seconds. So again, try and observe it early in the month if the weather allows. It halts its retrograde motion westwards in the sky, so in fact it's now moving rather slowly relative to the stars, staying very close to Gamma Virginis, or Porima, in the constellation of Virgo. Again, not that high in the sky. Best seen at about 11pm as May begins. Mercury has probably its best apparition in the evening sky this year. At the start of May, it's very low above the horizon in the twilight, but as each evening follows, it appears a little higher in the sky. Perhaps May the 16th to the 28th will be the best time to observe it, when it will be about 15 degrees above the northwestern horizon at sunset, and still about 10 degrees elevation in the latter part of twilight. On May the 25th, at greatest elongation, it will set nearly two hours after sunset, and will shine at magnitude plus 0.4, with its 8 arc second crescent disk being about 40% illuminated. At the end of May, it will still be more than 5 degrees above the horizon an hour after sunset, but its brightness will have faded to just plus 1.2. Finally, Venus. Well, Venus, shining at magnitude minus 4 during the month, lies in the southern part of Pisces, and will be seen about 12 degrees above the eastern horizon half an hour before sunrise. Its disk, now showing a gibbous phase as it moves somewhat beyond the sun, drops in angular size from 17 to 15 arc seconds, but at the same time, the percentage of the disk which is illuminated increases from 67 to 77%. As a result, the effective area reflecting the sun's light stays almost constant, and there's only a drop of 0.1 magnitudes in brightness during the month. Well, what about the highlights? Well, let's start with a little bit more about the planets. Mars reached opposition last April. At the beginning of May, it still shines at magnitude minus 1.2, and its angular size of 14.5 arc seconds still makes it well worth observing. Due to the fact that Mars, and to a lesser extent the Earth, have elliptical orbits, its distance from us at opposition can vary quite substantially from 54 to 102 million kilometers. As a result, the angular size varies from 13 to 25 arc seconds at opposition. Quite a big difference. At the moment, the angular size at opposition is increasing and will reach 18.6 arc seconds in 2016, May, and 24.31 arc seconds in July 2018. And that's pretty good. Sadly, again, it's getting somewhat lower in the ecliptic, so its elevation isn't that high. Obviously, Saturn reaching opposition on the 10th of May means it's the best month, really, to observe it, shining with a magnitude of about plus 0.1, surrounded by the beautiful ring system extending about 43 arc seconds across. To find it in the sky, follow the arc of the plough's handle downwards to first find the orange star Arcturus and continue down to find the white first magnitude star Spica in Virgo. Saturn, a little brighter than Spica and somewhat yellowish, lies down to its lower left in the constellation of Libra. Binoculars, and certainly a small telescope, will enable you to spot Saturn's brightest moon, Titan, at magnitude 8.2. Obviously, a small telescope will show the rings quite beautifully. In early May, it's still worthwhile to observe Jupiter. Obviously now well past opposition but because it's at the highest part of the ecliptic, it will still be high in the sky just after sunset. The features seen in the Jovian atmosphere have been changing quite significantly over the last few years. For a while, in fact, the south equatorial belt vanished completely. But it's now returned to its normal wide state. And there's a diagram on the night sky page that shows you the main features. Well, what about other highlights? Well, first of all, during May, 
it may be possible to spot a rather nice comet. It's C slash 2012 2K1, PANSTARS, because it was discovered by the same system that discovered comet PANSTARS that we all watched last year. It's passing below the plough, shining at magnitude 7 or 8, which means that binoculars on a dark night should pick it up. I have put a star chart showing the trajectory of the comet below the plough on the night sky page. And there are some obvious times to look for it. On May the 1st and the 2nd, it's just to the right of the left-hand star in the plough's handle. On the 18th and 19th, it lies very close to Chi Ursa Majoris. And on the 26th and 27th, it lies adjacent to Psi Ursa Majoris. So if you can find those stars, then in fact you should be able to spot the comet in the same field of view of a pair of binoculars. On May the 6th, before dawn, you may see some of the meteors that are related to the Eta Aquarid shower, looking southeast well before dawn. You need a good low horizon, and you might see up to 10 meteors per hour from our northerly latitude. Happily, the moon, which is around first quarter, will have set, so that will not hinder our view. These meteors, the Eta Aquarids, result from dust particles that were released from Comet Halley in an eruption as it neared the Sun some 4,000 years ago. Well, as well as that, I have some days shown with little star charts on the night sky page when the particular planets come close to a moon. May the 3rd and 4th, Jupiter and a thin crescent moon. May the 11th, Mars and a waxing moon. And May the 30th, Mercury and a very thin crescent moon. Nice times to look for them, because if you find the moon, which is easy, you can easily find the planet. So I do hope, although the nights are not Thanks as long, you'll have some and good observing during May. Listeners, here's John Field with the Southern Night Sky. Welcome to the May Jodcast from Carter Observatory, Wellington, New Zealand. This month sees Orion the Hunter low in the west. A line of three bright stars forms his belt. To Marty, these three stars form part of the bird snare. On the side of these three stars, we see Rigel, a blue star, marking one of his feet, and on the other side, a red star, Betelgeuse, marking one of his shoulders. Above the belt, a faint line of stars forms his sword. The middle star of the sword appears fuzzy, and this is the famous Great Nebula in Orion. Binoculars and small telescopes will reveal a hazy cloud with a bat-like shape. This is a region of star formation about 1,300 light-years away, and it makes a beautiful sight in large telescopes. To some southern hemisphere sky watchers, the belt and sword form an asterism called the pot, or the saucepan. Orion will set soon after the sun. Following Orion is Sirius, which marks the head of one of his two hunting dogs. Sirius is nearby to our solar system, about 8.7 light years away, and it is 26 times brighter than our star, the sun. Commonly called the dog star, it is the brightest star in Canis Major, the large dog. To Mari, it is Takarua, the winter star. To Egyptians, it is Sophist, and its dawn rising heralded the annual floods down the Nile Valley. Below Sirius and fainter is Procyon, the eighth brightest star in our night sky. It marks the lesser dog. Its name means before the dog, as in the northern hemisphere, this star rises before Sirius. Like Sirius, Procyon has a white dwarf companion, but it is difficult to observe. Following a line from Rigel and past Betelgeuse, we find Jupiter and two bright stars marking the heads of Gemini, the twins. Castor is 52 light years away, and Pollux is closer at 34 light years away. The planet Jupiter is a very bright star sitting in this constellation. As the largest planet in our solar system, Jupiter will always show a disk when observed for a small telescope. Under good conditions and high magnifications, bands and balance may be seen on the planet's disk. You should be able to observe its four largest moons performing their dance around Jupiter with a pair of 7x50 binoculars. Rising in the east are the constellations of Scorpius and Sagittarius. By late evening, they are both well above the horizon and are host to a number of beautiful and interesting objects. In the south, Crux, the Southern Cross and the Pointers are now high overhead in our evening sky. Nearby to Beta Crucis is a cluster of stars called the Jewel Box. Visible as a hazy star, this cluster makes for a pretty sight in binoculars. More detail will be seen when viewed for a telescope. Between Crux and Sirius running along the Milky Way are the constellations of Carina, the Keel, and Vita, the Sails. And these include the diamond and false crosses that are not 
official constellations, they are asterisms. This region is also home to a large number of bright stars clustered in nebulae, and some can be easily viewed with the unaided eye, and many more can be found in binoculars or telescopes. Eta Carina is the brightest of these and covers an area of the sky larger than the Orion Nebula. This nebula surprisingly does not look as impressive as the Orion Nebula due to its sitting along the bright Milky Way. Binoculars reveal a region embedded with star clusters and glowing clouds of gas intertwined with dark lanes. Eta Carina itself appears as a bright orange coloured star. Visible in the north and eastern sky after sunset are the planets Mars and Saturn. Mars is near the blue white star Spica which is the brightest star in Virgo. It was closest to the Earth in early April and is now starting to fade and will appear smaller when viewed through a telescope as it moves further away from us. In Greek mythology, Virgo is the harvest goddess and it is the second largest constellation. Sitting away from the bright band of the Milky Way, Virgo is home to many galaxies that are visible in medium to large telescopes. Following Mars is Saturn, appearing as a yellow star in front of the stars of Libra, the scales. It reaches opposition on the 10th of May. Around midnight on the 14th and 15th of May, we will see the almost full moon called Saturn. Visible with the unaided eye, this sight will be much more spectacular when viewed through a telescope. Autumn is one of the best times of year to observe the Aurora Australis, or commonly known as the Southern Lights. These beautiful lights are caused by the interaction of the solar wind and the Earth's magnetic field. An atmospheric aurora can be visible from southern parts of New Zealand, Australia and South America. They can appear as a red glow along our southern horizon, but can also be seen as moving sheets or curtains of glowing red and green. The amount of activity on the sun, in the form of sunspots, coronal holes and solar flares, will affect the visibility and intensity of any auroral activity. The sun has increased in activity so far this year, and with a number of powerful but unfortunately Earth-directed coronal mass ejections. A number of websites will give you real-time information and predictions of aurora, and are worth checking out regularly if you want to see if any activity is predicted. Venus is in our morning sky, but is now rising later each morning as it moves back towards the sun. Many thanks for listening to our Jodcast, and we hope you have clear skies and great observing. Thanks for that, John. And now on to feedback. We have posts, and we have a postcard with a picture, a winter scene, a mountain scene, uh, which is Menu du Jour in French, so it's a postcard from the Alps, actually. And let me read it out to you. So, Dear Jodcast, I know how much you like to get postcards, so I thought you would like to see where I've been skiing. I listened to the Jodcast all the way from England to La Plagne, and you kept me sane. Great podcast. Keep up the good work. Simon. Well, thanks a lot, Simon. It's a really nice postcard. It's going to go up on our wall of postcards. And... Well, I would have liked to have gone skiing this year for one. Yeah, it's all right for one, Simon. <laughs> <laughs> but we're glad that the Jodcast kept you company on your winter adventures. We have two emails. So the first email says, Congratulations on the April Extra Edition. I thought both main interviews were very clear and comprehensive guides without being too technical. The Ask an Astronomer answers were well and clearly presented as well. Keep up the good work. John Merle, ex-University of Manchester distance learning student. Well, thank you, John. That's lovely. Robert Kramers points out that in the April Extra uh, odd and end that I did about gravitational microlensing, I said that the events were one shot, and actually that's not entirely true. Um, he points out that if you have more than one telescope and more than one point of view, you can actually build up uh, a picture of, of the event uh, over time, or at least from two different points of view, which lets you have more information about it. So thanks for pointing that out, Robert. This is actually uh, something which is kind of related to like work that I've done with... like. Uh both the Spitzer Space Telescope and the Herschel Space Observatory where occasionally asteroids would appear in the images, but they would be at different locations from where you would see the asteroid on Earth because yeah. the telescope was at a different location sure. than Earth. Nice so it's kind of a related uh, concept there. And yes, he, he is right that it's like putting a telescope in a different place it lets you see a microlensing event at a slightly different time. Uh, from Facebook, we have a lovely message. I learn loads and really enjoy the Jodcast. Thanks so much to everyone who's involved with it. And I really like the number of female scientists that are featured and involved in its production. Such a breath of fresh and fair air from Vary Gordon Preston. Thanks, Vary. That's lovely. I'm happy to be here too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and thanks to all the people who've liked the page in the last month. And on Twitter, Coco Nino says that he loved the robot takeover episode and asked us uh, if we knew that they've also tried taking over Spitzer. 
and he he sent a link to uh, the irrelevant or IR relevant astronomy, uh, which is a web series produced by um, the NASA Spitzer Space Telescope, and they have a series of videos hosted by a robot as well. So we'll retweet that, and you can check out that link. And also, thanks for the retweets and follow Fridays on Twitter. And if you want to get in touch, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net. Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. Facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast. YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. Flickr at flickr.com slash groups slash jodcast. And don't forget that you can send us posts. The address is on the website. Thanks to Dr. Chris Hales for the interview. The editors were Stuart Harper, Indy LeClerc, Mark Perver, and Chris Wallace. The producer was Indy LeClerc. Until next time, John. John.